Yo, what is up? Welcome to the Street Gospel Podcast. I'm your host, Dave One. And this is bonus episode once again. And, uh, you know, we only have bonus episodes when we got somebody special, somebody that can't make it into the studio. And uh, I'm very happy to have this guest today. But before we get to our guests, uh, a couple couple things I wanted to announce real quick. So if you're out there and you want to be a part of an organization that's helping people, there's a great organization out there. It's run by my sister and my brother-in-law. Uh, they got great hearts. Uh, they have an organization called Hope and Promises. So uh, you can find them on Instagram, at Hope and Promises. You can find them on the web, at HopeandPromises.com. What they do is they go out, they help people that have been either uh, disenfranchised by a, a man-made disaster or a natural disaster. They provide food, they provide clothing, uh, support, prayer, all that good stuff. A great organization. And I'm not just telling you this because uh, that's my family, but I'm telling you because they have great hearts. They, they go all over the world, Mexico, Nicaragua. They've been different places helping people here in the States. So uh, if you can check them out, support them. Hope and promises. They're on the gram. They're on the net. Uh, check them out. Secondly, really quick, is I want to give a shout out to Elevate Ministries. If you're in the SoCal area, Orange County in particular, the city of Orange in particular, there's a great church out there called Elevate Ministries. Um, they're about people. They're about family. They're about the individual. They're about loving God, loving people. Uh, I want to ask everybody out there if you can visit them. They're on the on YouTube. Elevate Ministries, um, check them out. Uh, if you don't have a church that you're going to right now and you're looking, maybe you're searching, uh, this is a great church to check out. Go visit. I'm telling you, it's a great church. Uh, check them out. But now, you know, we got to get down to the business and introduce my guests. And, you know, I always got to play like a little a little music when I introduce my guests. And, you know, just get out there. I thought this was a little... Uh, I thought this beat was a little bit gangster for my guest, you know, because he's he's a little bit of a gangster. I mean, he's a real deal. I mean, he's an ex-made man. Uh, he's a Bostonian, and we'll get into that. He's an author, an ex-con. He's a carpenter. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty nice. This guy's just a jack of all trades. I heard he's a salesperson, a salesman. He can sell, you know, snow to an Eskimo. You know, he's a father. He's a show host. He got his own show. I'm sure we're going to get into that. Okay, this is not fair. The guy's a theologian. I mean, he has all these things lined up, man. He's a Christian. I mean, he just, one, once again, we got a renaissance man that just does it all. Been there, done that. Uh, I get a little jealous of these guys because uh, uh, I wish I could be like that. But uh, I want to introduce our guest to the show. Bobby Luisi. What's up, Bobby? How you doing, man? Good, Dave. Thank you. I'm doing good, my brother. Good, How man. You doing? I'm doing good, man. You know, it's uh, it's 70 degrees here on the west coast of Kelly. And uh, what are you guys looking at over there? At 19 degrees. 19 degrees. 19 degrees of Boston, yeah. You know, I like to visit the east coast. Uh, you know, uh, I've been to New York a few times. And, and uh, I've been to Florida a few times. Very contrasting uh weather but uh I, I i love these mid midwest and east coast towns you know but it's just when it gets to winter time i i think i i wouldn't be able to survive man 
It's just too much. No, no, it's tough. You got to be used to it. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up like this. So, you know, I love the four seasons. That's I've been to California several times. I like California. I love it down there, but you know, I, I love my seasons. That's right. why I came back to Boston. Right. I think, um, I think, uh, you know, the four season is big. I think in California, we don't really experience that. It's, it's either raining or, you know, it's super hot. Uh, the sun's out. I think when you go to like these these other states and stuff, and you really see you know winter, spring, summer, and fall, I think that's that's something we don't always experience. And everybody that I talk to that comes from those areas always say like, "Yeah, you guys don't know what you're missing, man." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good. Well, I'll tell you, if you were born and raised in South California, you won't love it here. Obviously, <laughs> you know. But the, I mean, it's something you get used to. I love the seasons. You know, I, I like the winter months and the fall to dress up, go out. You know, we, we know how California, how hot it could be down there. Right. And, uh, you know, well, Boston gets hot in the summer in August. It does get hot here, but there's nothing like what you experience over there. Yeah. And I know that because I did time in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, I did okay. seven years there. Yeah. See, I got some family that lives in Phoenix, and uh, I, I I just I can't do that either, man. It's just, you know. Oh, it, it gets hot. I mean, there's their winters are like 90 degrees. You know, yeah. it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, was, it was something living there. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I was kind of forced to. So, <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, Bobby, you grew up in uh, in, in Boston in, in the, the I would say the infamous North End, Little Italy. Yes. Yes. Um, what was life like growing up in uh, for you? You know, was it uh, were you were you from a stable home environment? Was was, you know, were you in the, one of those kids that were in the streets? You know, kids don't know about that. I was I was playing outside all day, every day, getting into trouble. Um, what was life like growing up, man? It, it was the same way. Uh, my mother and father got divorced. I wasn't even two years old. And uh, my mother moved to East Boston, which was another big Italian Irish neighborhood. Uh, the North then is all Italian. It was all Italian at one time. Uh, big Italian population there. And um, growing up in East Boston with my friends and We'd be out to two, three in the morning playing in the streets. <laughs> streets were safe then. There was all gangsters around, you know. Yeah, really nice place to grow up. I'm saying for in the city. Right. Um, I, I kind of grew up as a normal kid. Uh, I worked after school. My first job was with the wise guys. I went and do the vending machines with them. And I worked for them. And uh, grew up with mob guys all around me. My father was a gangster. Enforcer for the Patriarca family, and uh, I, I that was a way of life to me. Yeah, was it was it normal? I mean, did did you realize as a kid, like, uh, or did you think like everybody grows up like this? No, I know not everybody did. Okay, it, it was good to be my father's son, <laughs> you know, and, and actually being able to be around these guys all the time, anytime I wanted. And uh, you know, it was different. I was different from my friends a little. I understood that. Not when we were all playing and getting in trouble with what we were doing. We were all equal then, but still, I was still Bobby Luis's son. So it was something. It was something seeing that uh, part of my life as a young kid, it was a big influence on my life. Did you uh, Did you take advantage of being a Luisi? Sometimes I did. Sometimes <laughs> I did. I always think about that scene in uh, in Bronx Tale and see, you know, the 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 fruit guy's coming through and he kind of dogs him a little bit, but after he realizes he's Sonny's Sonny's uh, friend, you know, and uh, yeah. the, the fruit guy goes, go give these to your mother. And he's giving him a whole bag of peaches and stuff, you know? 
I'll tell you, when I was young and I was in my teens, uh, I was 16, uh, I moved back to the North End. I was around those guys every day. If if wise guys saw me, May guys saw me walking down the street, they stopped the car actually if I needed a ride. Wow. That's how much, that's how the neighborhood was. That's how these guys were. And, and you know, that's, it impressed me when I, at a young age. Right. You know, to, for them to actually want to do that. And I felt at that time I might have been starting to get groomed to come into the life. Right. You know? is, is, oh, that, is that a... Uh... A common thing when they when they find a young kid such as yourself, maybe your family's connected, associated, and, and they kind of like say, "Okay, we're going to take care of this kid and kind of show him uh, how how things are done." Well, I think what happens, you know, being a Luisi, being my father's son, uh, we were around them a lot. Um, we did construction work for them. Uh, my father used to run their strip joints; it was always in and out of them, uh, always around them. And you know, it's like anything else; if they like you. You know, and they like you around, they're going to help you. You know, they'll show you a better way. So when they see the interest in you and that, hey, maybe this guy, this kid does have potential, you know, they'll start teaching you a little at a time. You start to learn. And the biggest thing on the street is to observe. That's what I was taught from the gangsters when I was a kid. You never speak out of line. You sit, you observe. You see why this guy's treated this way, why this guy's treated that way. Why is this guy getting so much respect when this guy isn't? You know, you start to learn all these things. You know, when patterns form inside your mind and you start really um, understanding. Right. You know, at that age, you're not in the depths of the life, what these other guys were doing, you know, but you're around it. You know, you see enough. Right. Did you, uh, did you aspire to be a, a, a gangster? I, I can't say that, you know, I, my family, we're all in construction. And uh, after the, I, I left the wise guys, I started working with a carpenter after school. And he was teaching me how to build porches, decks, you know, in the, build, in the cities, we got three, four-story porches, hanging doors, you know, doing kitchens over. I was doing this at a young age. I loved it. I said, this is what I want to be. And I kind of moved away from that. You know, I, I saw how my father lived in these other guys. And, you know, there's something to be said about that life. But I want them to make it legitimately. I, I think uh, I think that's most guys in the street, right? Uh, they're, they're in the street. Uh, if they don't find something that they're good at or, you know, we got guys here that, you know, maybe they're great at fixing up cars and they'll they'll yeah. be drawn to that. Or maybe they're good at sports. That's another big thing. And they'll be drawn to that. And it kind of the, the guys in the neighborhood kind of leave those guys alone and they let them do their thing. I mean, was that kind of like your thing with, with carpentry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think my father liked that I went that way. And uh, with the wise guys, you're either there or not at my age. It's not something like I had to be there. I wasn't one of the crew, you know. So it, it was easy for me just to slip away and fade away after a while. You know, but I was always in town. I always saw them, hugged them, kissed them, respected them. You know, so I was always there in one way or another, but I didn't want to hang with them anymore. I started to learn early about the life with, with, with certain things that didn't attract me. Yeah. That I didn't want to be a part of uh, at that time. So I really wanted to try to start, you know, legitimately to have my own company. And at 20 years old, I got my first builder's license. 23, I got my second license. At 20 years old, I had my own little company. 
that's 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 unheard of. I mean, you yeah. must have been you must have been really sharp with uh, with not only building but in in your business acumen. Well, I, I think you know I, I did have a gift from my mother. My mother always had businesses, accountings, all that you know, and um, I think I picked that up from her. It was excellent with numbers. Um, there wasn't a problem that I couldn't figure out. Made a lot of mistakes. I was a young guy, you know. I had to learn, uh, but um, I was a great carpenter and framer. I was a builder. I used to go in this. Uh, a lot of my friends used to buy the buildings in Boston. I used to go reconstruct them from the ground up. Uh, you know, I learned a lot of skills. A lot of people wanted me to work for them, and it's something you take pride in. Right. I, I think in this day and age, especially with with college being so expensive, uh, people kind of kind of put those kind of trades to the side. And and I'm in construction, so I mean, there's guys that come in and they don't have nothing in the street. And they and, and they become plumbers, or they become you know a, a sheet metal worker, or or, mm-hmm. or or pipe fitter, and these guys make a really good living. And I think and I tell people, if hey, if school's not your thing, if you're not into the four year college, or or, or want to be in debt, right <laughs> after the yeah. end of four years, uh, yeah. find a trade you're good at, and 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 do it. There's money to be made. I think it's 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 a school's not for everybody. No, it's not. Um... Like I said, it wasn't for me. I quit school at, t- at 16. I had my own apartment at 16. It was in my father's building with my family, but I had my own apartment. I had bills I had to pay. I never paid rent, but I, I had bills I had to pay. I wouldn't give them that. But, um, you know, you learn. I learned at a young age. Um, I grew up fast. I grew up around these guys. And, you know, at that time, that's what I wanted. All the way up to 30 years old, till the market crashed up here. Down uh, down the Cape, I had property on Martha's Vineyard. Wow. Down there, I had my condos back home. I lost everything. I just couldn't pay all these mortgages anymore, and they weren't selling. I couldn't flip any more houses. I went from having 20 men working for me, steady besides subcontractors, and then there was nothing. Man. Happened overnight. So I decided to come back in 1990, and I went back on the street. Was it Was that a rough decision for you? No, not really. Or you came to your, your your ropes end and just said, "Well, this is I gotta I gotta survive." Yeah, yeah. It wasn't really. Um, like I said, if I didn't find that carpentry work, I would have been on the street. Yeah, but you know, I found something that I loved and I wanted to do. Um, I don't think it's a, you make a decision like that. If you understand what I'm saying, it's either in you or it's not. You know, maybe a guy was a plumber. And next week he decides to be a drug dealer. That's doesn't mean he knows what he's doing. They're going to be successful, does sure. it? Sure. No. You know, if it's kind of bred into you and it's part of your life, you know, it's easy to walk back into. Did you have some mouths to feed too? Yeah. When I came back from the vineyard, I had two children at the time. Yeah. So that, that yeah, had to play a big role in that too, right? John? Yeah, it did. It did. You know, my third uh, child came later, you know, but uh, yeah. I had to get out there and earn. So people in Boston knew you. Was it easy to make that transition back to the street? Yeah, it was no problem. I started hanging around again and, you know, I started a little bookmaking, opened up a few card clubs. Yeah, I started moving and grooving over there. Now, you have a a, a pretty unique story um, where I don't don't recall, and I'm not a, a, a mob expert, but uh, my father liked 
like to read a lot of books and knew a lot about that. And we watched mm-hmm. the movies and all that stuff. But you had a unique situation that I've never heard of, Bobby. And that was that you wanted to be a made guy in the patriarchal family, in, which is the family in Boston, in your neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for some reason, it didn't work out. You went to New York. That didn't, that didn't turn out the way you wanted. And then you went to Philly and got made. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's ever happened, correct? Well, you know, uh, I'm not going to talk about me, guys, but when I was building my family and my crew on the street, you know, I used to go into the neighborhoods. So he was running around over there, what they were doing, and I used to grab them and take them under my umbrella. It's kind of the same logic if you look at it. I mean, I was already a boss up there before I even got made. I had a big crew. Uh, we'll make a big money. The Petriaca family was in disarray, so it was easy for me to slip in there with another crew. And that's what I did. So that's when I reached out to New York, to Pete Gaudi, a friend of mine, and went, went to see him. Even though there wasn't a sitting commission, there's still commission rules, and he didn't want to get involved because there was a sitting family already up there, the Petriaca family, the New England family. They're from Rhode Island all the way up to Maine. And I had my crews all the way up like that myself in Connecticut. So I wanted to get everybody straightened out. And I ended up hooking up with Jory Molino in Philadelphia. And uh, I was proposing the family. Even though I wasn't in Philly for any length of time, I used to go down and visit, that's all. And uh, I was always based in Boston, from Boston. And my whole crew was from Boston. But uh, I, I think Joey saw the opportunity. I had an opportunity now to become a member of his family, and uh, we made a deal. I ended up becoming a couple, and then we started straying on my guys in Boston. Uh, as far as mob history goes, I don't think anybody's ever done what I've done, bringing another family and crew into a, a solid city like Boston. Uh, I don't think anybody ever did that before. I think I kind of made a little mafia history with that move. Yeah, I, I, I think so, because yeah. I've, I've never yeah. heard that. So you were running a crew in Boston. You Obviously, you had respect already mm-hmm. before being a made guy. What was the benefit of becoming a made guy? I mean, was it just in name only for you? Because you already had a clout. Well, you got to remember, uh, there were different factions up there, even from the Petriaca family. There was a lot of divisions up there. And the mentality on the street is to be a real boss, you got to be a main guy. And that's, you know, how they thought about it up there. And they still do up there. Even though the mobs pretty much diminished up here. But uh, at that time in the 90s, it was like the Wild West of Boston. So to be legitimate on the street, to put it that way, to be legitimate on the street, um, I wanted to get made and straighten my crew up. That was my intention to have my own family up in Boston. Okay, and and does that does that give you a a, a a leg up or a benefit being a made guy? No, I I really don't think it didn't change anything. Uh, when I I was straightened out on my guys, it just now everybody knew that we were made guys. There was more respect, obviously, from uh, other people. But there was still other problems going on up there. Right. You know, but uh, yeah, it it made a difference uh, on a street level. 
um, being a May guy. Uh, it didn't enhance my family or my business in any way, if that's what you're asking, if that's what you meant. Yeah. We're already pretty solid at the time. No, uh, I, I would ask this. You were running a crew in your construction company of 20 guys uh, yeah. at a very young age. So yeah. what is the difference between running a crew of construction guys and running a business and running a crew of, you know, street guys kind of, is there some, some things you could compare there that like you were good at well, this. Now you're good at this. Let, well, let me tell you, you know, I took my business sense onto the street. Um, that, that's how I put it together. I kind of ran it like a little corporation. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had my close guys with me. Everybody had a position. Everybody made money. Uh, I thought of it as business. I never thought of it as, um, well, I did actually did think of it as the street. I mean, don't get me wrong, but, uh, I always thought of it as a business. That's what we were there to do. We all had to make money and, uh, that's pretty much how I ran it. Yeah, yeah, make sure yeah. the guys that were close to me made money. I think uh, throughout the history of the mob, it was it was those or that type of uh, mentality that made great uh, uh, bosses or or, or capos, mm-hmm. or, you know, um, in the mob. It was the guys that took it as this is a business, and I'm going to model it after GM or I'm going to model it after you know what uh, this corporation, right? Right. That's a good. That's that. That was the best way to do it. Yeah. So you. So you start. You're. You're made. You. You're. You're. With Joey Merlino, which in, in, in itself, Joey's. Uh, uh, I mean, Joey's still alive. Joey's still around. Um, in 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 uh in Bo- Philly. I'm sorry, in Philly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. now how do you start running your organization? Under Joey, do you have to get, get give him some kickback because he because he vouched for you, or how does that work? When once you start running your 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 legitimate mob mob organization, yeah, there was an agreement for money to be sent down every month, and uh, compared to what I was making, it wasn't much, but uh, it was a good figure, and I sent it down every month as long as I could, and uh, but but by the end. Uh, before I got pinched, I was trying to get out of the drug business. I had a big loan shark business. We had bookmaking. Uh, the big money was in the drugs and the cocaine. And uh, when that slowed down, the money started slowing down, going down the field. Because I felt that the loan shark and the rest of that was mine. Also, the drugs was too, but that's where I would have uh, kicked in more, you know. So anyway, uh, yeah, there was uh, uh, an arrangement made. That, uh, you know, we would keep the Philly and Boston business separate. Uh, so there's no overstate with the federal uh, government and the bookmaking. And we wanted to just leave it all separate until uh, Ronnie Previty stepped in. He was an informant for the FBI, the state police. Uh, Joey had made him a captain, making him a captain. You know, Captain Capo. A Capo in the family is a boss. Capo means boss in Italian. He was able to talk to me because he had that he had that uh, status now right. to be able to talk to me. He was, you know, raised up. So at that time, uh, I felt the whole deal was fishy. And uh, first, it started with some uh, gambling, 
then swag, and then they started with the drugs. Because the FBI was trying to get me in a RICO charge. And you need at least two predicate acts for that. But the other arrangements didn't work out. But unfortunately, they did get me with the drugs. uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Drugs in the mob, I mean... They say, I mean, it was it was a taboo thing, right? And just, but everybody was doing in the involved in the drug business. I mean, it's kind of the easiest way to make a quick buck, right? Yeah, well, you've seen it in the Godfather movies and this other, these other portrayals. How they had the meeting, they didn't want the drugs, you know. And then there was just too much money to stay away from it. When the old bosses decided that they didn't want no more drugs in the family, you know, these guys are all millionaires. You, yeah. you got to think about the lower street guy out there. I mean, drugs is a bad business. Don't get me wrong. But now talking uh, as being a farmer street guy, that's where the money was. Right. I, what, I mean, what still are we is. Doing still is. You know? So against everything, you know, it was still supposed to be taboo when I was doing it. But I still did it. And otherwise, guys were doing it. So it's just something... You do it, you don't talk about it. Like I was saying before, the drugs goes down the line. So if you got a couple, he might give it to a soldier. A soldier works with that person, so he stays out of it. And that's how I had everything set up. Until Ronnie Previty came in the picture. So Ronnie, being an informant, um, I assume he was gathering a lot of uh, information on, on A lot of on information. You guys. Yeah, he was. He was trying really hard. Now you got you now you got uh you got indicted on uh the drugs, correct? Got indicted on the drugs, yeah. Was that in result to 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 his testimony or his uh information oh, yeah, that he gave yeah. up? They, he had me sit down with an FBI agent. I was on tape, wire, everything. Man. Oh. And, and what was your uh reaction when you found out that it was him? I mean, you guys obviously were friends at one time. No, I was never friends with Ronnie. I never liked him. Oh, really? Yeah, I used to pick on him a little. Um, I don't know why Joey made him a couple. I had an argument with that over, but him over that at a party. You know, I said, where's your crew? You're a couple. Where's your guys? You know, went back and forth. With him. I just didn't like him. Uh, when they came in actually for the drugs, I was down in Philadelphia at a party in Center City. And he came and he asked me about the drugs. And I told him, I'm not in that business. You know, I kept shooing him away as much as I could. And I uh, went to Joey. I said, Joey, this kid, just he just come and asked me for drugs. And just Joey dropped his hands like this, walked away, said, oh, we got to make money. Mm. So you know what that means, right? Yeah. What does that mean, my friend? That means- you should do it. You got to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the pickle that Joey put me in. So at that same party, I, Sean Vettieri was there. He was a May guy of my crew. And I told Sean what just happened. I said, we got to be careful now. You know, with this Irish Mike that was the federal agent trying to give me all the swag and everything. Now we're going into drugs. And uh, we know there was something wrong. So what I did is I pulled my guys away from Mike because I felt if the pitch was going to come down, I didn't want my crew to be in jeopardy. So I had to handle it myself. And that's how I got in trouble. I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of capitals, captains, with their crew would wouldn't do that. They they honestly would probably, hey, you got to take the rap, you know, and put it on one of their guys. 
Well, you know something, I'm very family oriented. That's how I was raised. My crew was my family. Um, I loved all those guys. They always protected me. And I just couldn't do that to people. I couldn't do that. And, uh, you know, I had to make that decision. You know, and, you know, a few of the main guys on my crew, actually family members, cousins. And I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't put them, anybody in that position that they might get pinched. I didn't believe in that. So I said, if this is going to happen, if it doesn't happen, we're going to make a lot of money. If it does happen, which I think it is, then I'm going to have to take the pinch for it. Wow. Yeah. And what did you, uh, what did you get sentenced to when you finally got pinched? Well, I was trying to work a deal of for 10 to 12 years, just make a plea bargain. But I found out while I was in there, I was going to get superseded for murder. So that kind of changed everything. You know, I would have took my 10 to 12, went into my time, kept my mouth shut, you know. But um, when I found out about the murder, uh, an ex-prosecutor, Bonnie Bedrow, came down on my lawyer and told me that the indictment was coming down on me. And... Uh, I'm not going to get out. I'll never see the light again. He says, I'll try to get you this 10 to 12, you know, either 10 years. Or we're trying to work on 10. They wanted to give me 12. We're trying to get them to 10. He said, I'll get you that, but you ain't getting out, Bob. He said, the next grand jury, you, you, you're getting reindicted and superseded. So they wanted me to talk. I said, no. You know, that's natural because you remember, Monty Withdrawal was a AUSA in Boston. So the natural thing is, come on, let's talk. And I told them no. But after a few weeks of sitting on myself on my stomach turned and all my friends were ratting on me, I said, uh, I called them up. I'll talk to them. Because I know I was a guy. You, you, you know what I uh, I trip out about gangsters like yourself? You were like 10 to 12. I'll take it. Like, it, yeah. it, it's no it's no big thing. And th- that comes with the life, right? Yeah, that comes with the life. It's when they start throwing those numbers at you. Uh, it's ridiculous. Those life, you know, those life numbers, and those life numbers, and twenty years or fifty. One, one of my friends got fifty-five years. Right. Fifty-five years. Right. You know, we were we were in our thirties then, late thirties, and you know, you just look and say, you know, this is crazy. Yeah, I believe he tried to flip, but he didn't. Didn't end up happening the following, but he did win an appeal. He's home now. God bless him. I don't want to say a name. But, uh, you know, the guy did over 20-something years in prison. It's wild. Uh, they wanted me to help them. I did start talking, but I couldn't go through with it. So I ended up at five different status hearings. I was under a Rule a rule 11E1C, which stated if the pro- prosecutor didn't want to give me the downward departure, I could pull my plea back for my underlying indictment. And thank God it was a murder. It was drugs. Took that back and went to trial. I lost the first time in about 20 years. Wow. Went on appeal, went back, and I ended up with 15 8. What were, what were you basing your appeal on? Uh, entrapment. Entrapment. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. I mean, he was an informant, and then you had the FBI guy with the Irish guy. Well, they coerced Joey with money to get me involved in it. That's what they were doing. You know, that's, that's how they set it all up. And, you know, the jury up here looked at me like, well, this is Bobby Luis. He deserves that anyway. So I had no shot at either trial. But they changed the guidelines in 2006, I think it was. And I fell through the cracks with my appeal. And uh, 
I ended up going back to trial. I lost again, but they had to take uh, the leadership points off of me because they can't be two leaders. See, they were cute, the government. They split the indictment up, even though it was the same case. So it was the Merlino faction in Philadelphia and the Luisi faction in Boston. So they get both Joey, get the both of us on leadership. That was their plan. But it didn't work out. Let me, let me, you know, my my buddy uh, was telling me that, you know, he's from the streets and he said that that the police's job is to catch us. Right. And our job is to try to get away. Right. As long as they don't entrap you or cheat, it's fine if we get caught. Good job. Right. Good job, officer. You got me. You know what exactly. I mean? But when it's yeah. when it's uh when it's uh, an entrapment or it's something they set you up, uh he always says like, Yeah, that's 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 not the way the game's played. If you if I'm no. doing I'm doing the crime, I'll do the time as long as they catch me the right way. Well, listen, if I had murdered somebody and no one knew about it, and I got caught on my own, I'm taking that heat no matter what it is. But I'm not going to allow these other guys to come in, rat on me, and go home. And I got I got to be the sucker, the mama Luke, that's going to sit in a jail for the rest of my life. Why, they're all home with their kids. That's why I flipped. Plus, 15 months before I got arrested in 1998, I had the spiritual experience. It lasted a while, and I turned my life over to Christ while I was on the street. How did that come about, Bobby? Well, you know, I was a ruthless guy in my own way on the street. I try to be great in the neighborhood and with people. I I, I was very uh, sociable. You know, I loved a lot of people in the street. But, you know, the way I was raised, I had no empathy. I had uh, I had no regard for life. I really didn't. I mean, I didn't realize how bad it really was till this all, you know, happened to me. And uh, I came home one night, and uh, there was something in the house. You know, and, uh, like I said, it lasted eight hours. I saw people that we killed. You know, seen I seen a lot of things that night. I don't want to get into it. All right. Um, I ended up calling the church. My mother started a church in a house in 1980. Non-denominational, you know, my kids, my wife, my ex-wife, we all pray in tongues. And, uh, you know, me, I went the other way. Even though I, you know, I tried to accept Christ. It worked for my wife, not me. And uh, I went the other way. But that night, I had a call for help because this thing was in my house. It tortured me, like I said, for about eight hours or more. And uh, the church came over. Pastor Lewis came over. Um, they gave me the host. They took Christ in my life. It didn't stop at all. Believe me, there was a spiritual haunting after that. But uh, from that point on, I started to look and seek for Christ to find out why that happened to me. Wow, I, I think um, that's that's uh, that's unheard of. And, 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 and as a as a believer, you got to realize like the things you guys do. That there is a great spiritual battle there, like like yeah. uh, 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 demonic forces. I mean, you you just don't do those things, you know. Uh, uh, you know, you can try to have a great heart, but there is some forces of evil that are, you know, in some dark places that are, yep. are, are moving the mob or have moved the mob for years oh, and years and years. I mean, you yep. can't, the stuff you hear, I mean, not, not to ask you anything like that, but 
we know how 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 people are murdered. You know, we've heard the stories of people chopping up, buried, uh, and then the guy goes, and it's just like a regular day, like a, like a job. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean that. Well, I mean, some you spiritual know, stuff. It's part of that life. It's like if a soldier goes out in Afghanistan and has to kill two people, you know, he has to survive. Yeah. This is what he had to do. That's how we looked at it. You know, it wasn't that uh, we hurt innocent people. We didn't go after civilians. We had a war up here in the 90s. It was kill or be killed. So, I mean, we did the things that we had to do. And uh, always been taught and, like, brainwashed with that, that, you know, it's a part of it. That's what you have to do. And, you know, you got to be able to live with it. Fortunately, I was able to live with it. It never bothered me or affected me uh, in any way. I never even had a nightmare over the things I did. But um, after I found Christ, I'm not going to say it weighed heavily on me because I still, and today, still think like a soldier. Things had to be done. But we have to realize that, you know, there's one thing of playing in Satan's playground, which we do every day, most of us. We try not to now that we're educated in the Lord. But most people play in Satan's playground every day, and he just allows it, and they just play in there. But then he sees something that people, he goes after them. Right. So now, what are you going to be with me? Or are you going to be with him? And I told him in the room, I says, I want to be with Christ. I don't want to be with you. Wow. You know, and that's what happened that night. And I, you know, and I called the church. I mean, it was amazing what happened. Um, you know, a lot of people that went through what I went through wouldn't talk about it, but it's part of my testimony. Right. So I feel I have to. So 15 months later, when I got arrested and they actually came to my door and cuffed me, I was smiling when they put me in the car because I felt, oh, this is over. Some relief. It was relief. And then I'll face it 10 to 12. I said, good, I'll do my 10 to 12. When I get out, I'll move to Florida. I don't want to know this nonsense anymore. Right. Because I want to follow Christ. And I'll tell you, he did a number on me, the Holy Spirit, while I was in prison. You know, the haunting still went on, got into deep prayer. Uh, that's why I decided to become a theologian. I decided that, and I did a four-year course, graduated with a 3.8 GPA. I see. And, uh, yeah, I did very well with it. I decided that because they're going to say, oh, this is another guy in the camp, thinks he's a pastor, thinks he's this, thinks he's that. So I kind of did it for that reason, obviously, to educate myself more. We all want to do that. Um, but I was just so deep into the Bible. You know, I wanted to learn more and all that I could. You know, a, a lot of a lot of gangsters, um, they go to the joint, they find God. I mean, I'm not saying in your, in your, in your case, but they go to the joint, they find God. And the other guys that are that are in there, and they might be still associated with with the gang life or or, or the mob life. Uh, they they look at those guys and they say, it, it, "It's it might be a cop out, or this is he's not for real." Did you get any of that? No, because I was two hundred fifty pounds, and I fought whoever came up against. <laughs> so I didn't really have that problem. Uh, some people tested it, but it didn't work out good for them. Right. Remember, I'm still a young guy in there. You know, when I first went in. And that people start to realize, well, this guy's for real. He really does love God. We see him praying, not outside. You know, I pray in private, but they know what I was doing. In uh, teaching and writing, writing a book. So they knew I was for real. So they respected that. And they also knew I'd go in their cell if we had a problem. 
So well, listen, yeah, you, I mean, they slap you in the face every day, Dave. You won't, you know that, right? Right. Th- this is the thing, you know. I, I, it's funny that you say that. One time, we were uh, we were hanging out, and uh, one of my dad, my dad was from the streets, and one of his old, we call him homeboys on the on the on this on the west side, right? So yeah. they, uh, you know, he we're playing around with him, and his name was Chico. You know, he's a he was a little dude, but he was he was a bad dude. And uh, yeah. we're at a pizza place, and uh, somebody was calling him Chico, Chico. And uh, so uh, one of the one of the we were young teenagers, man, just dumb. One of the guys at the table with us, you know, he was like, Chica, you know, playing around. So Chico oh, yeah, turned around and he came back yeah, and he goes, he goes, hey man, <laughs> he goes, hey man, I'm saved, but I ain't that saved. Don't call me that. <laughs> and uh, so I mean, I get what you're saying, but it's like, hey, if you want to step to me, great. If you want to step to me for prayer. Great. If you want me to step, lay these hands upon you, we can we can get down right now. Yeah. Well, that I'm still like that today. I mean, I you know I love people, and I hope it never comes to that. But uh, I don't like nonsense, and I don't put up with it from anybody. Um, I had to catch myself because I even started. You know, we got all these trolls on here, and I started attacking them a little. I had to back up a little from that. No, I'm a loving person. I care about people, but I'm not going to let people abuse me. Right. I never did that my whole life. They're not going to do it now. You know how they do it over the internet now. Who cares about half of that stuff? But yeah. uh, it's nonsense. Now, what's your background, Dave? I've been a Christian my whole life. I grew up okay. in the L.A. area. Uh, my dad, my family was from the streets. Uh, they yeah. were um, in one of L.A.'s most notorious gangs for for uh, for years. Um and then there was a time when when my father gave his life to the Lord and my mother gave his life to the Lord and the the, the great yeah the great thing about it was that uh, you know I had a lot of uncles that were involved in in, in drugs and in crime and gang banging and all that stuff uh, when my mom and dad gave their life to the Lord they were a part of a, uh, a, a a group of people that 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 got saved and turned their yeah. life around so there it was uh, this gang had this revival where all these guys came to the Lord and even their rivals and started going, they all started going to the same church. There were rivals yeah. in the street shooting at each other, you know, stealing from each other, beating up each other, fighting with each other. And, uh, God saved them. So, uh, I've never, uh, I didn't want that life for myself, you know, and my father wouldn't let me have that life for, for me. And, um, but I grew up in LA. I've, I've seen it all, you know, and, uh, was around it, but, uh, I've, I've served the Lord my, you know, my whole life. Praise God. Now, what nationality are you? I'm, I'm, I'm Mexican-American. I mean, we call it Chicano on this side. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. well, you know, you're, you're busted over here before, so. Well, I got to tell you, all my classes at prison, if there were 20 guys in my class, I would probably say 15 of them were Mexican guys. <laughs> well, because I'm Italian, so we're all Latinos. So my close friends in there were all uh, Mexican. They were Mexican mafia. They're all out of California. Most of them are out of California. Uh, actually, Payaso was, uh, you know what that means in yeah. Spanish. Payaso was actually like my helper nice. in the classes. And uh, Gizmo and a few other guys were in there with me. All nice people, <laughs> you know. We'd eat together. we talk together. You know, commits together. It was nice. It yeah, was nice. It's, so, it's a good thing when you find the Lord and then it's just he brings just these different people that on the street, they, they would never be together. But when right. he brings them and in, 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 they're in kind of one accord, then it's like, man, I would never be this guy's friend in the street or we'd have problems. But you get saved and it's like a different story, man. 
Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But still, even not being saved, I, that's how I feel about the Spanish and Italian being together. Yeah. You know? there, there, so there's a lot of uh, like, a lot yeah. of parallels there. I mean, yeah, we're, we're all like uh, primos, you know. <laughs> we say cugino in Italian. I know Spanish is primo. But uh, that's how we all are. That's how we were in prison together. You know, it was just a bunch of good people. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels between uh, uh, Italians and, and Mexican families, especially oh, uh, Italian Americans and, and Mexican Americans. There's, uh, yeah. you know, we're we're really family oriented. Uh, yeah. We love to cook. We love food. We love yeah. get-togethers. I mean, uh, we're hardworking. Um, so there's a lot of parallels between between the, those uh, cultures. Oh, there is, there is, and the more that I was around with these guys, the more you see it. Right. You know. So, so Bobby, you get you 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 do. You do your 14 years, you don't – now, this is the question I wanted to ask you, and, 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 and no disrespect, you, no, did, right. you, you did talk – you did – now, there's now there's been arguments with some of the other guys that are on YouTube now, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying for you to throw them on the bus. I just want your opinion. They're, they're trying to differentiate between a cooperator, an informant, and, and what we know as a rat. Is, yeah. there, is there a difference between those, Bobby? Well, when they first wanted me to cooperate with them, they wanted me, if I wanted to get out on bail, I had to go wear a wire. I would never do that. I wouldn't do that. You know, um, my crimes are already committed. Uh, I think there is a difference. You know, there's guys on the street wearing wires on other guys. I, I think that's terrible. Um, there is a slight difference to all of that. Uh, not that one's better than the other, because listen, especially being a tie in with America, once you break your code, you know, you are where you are. Um, even though I didn't cooperate fully with the government, I still told them things. So there's no way for me to ever go back into that life with these people. Although I have to tell you that all my friends are former capos and soldiers from Cousin Ostra are associates. We're all still together, a lot of us, uh, from way back then. And uh, it, it's something because we're still looking at Austria in our hearts, you know, but we just don't want that life anymore. What happened to me, uh, I was ready to get out. I did my time. And they came to me over the Guardian Museum House in 1990. That was the biggest art robbery ever in the I, world. I'm a big art guy. Yeah. And and uh, I heard you, you had, like... Uh, uh, some stories about you kind of hearing things in, in, from yeah. Boston, and when uh, I, I love the documentary on the Gardner Art Heist, and yeah. I, and I, I just seen it like last year, and I was just so intrigued by that by that whole thing. Yeah, so they came to me with that information because Bobby Garanti was with me on the street at that time. You know, uh, they did that in '90. I think Bobby Garanti started coming around me in about '93. Um, besides that. Uh, they caught Enrico Ponzo was on the run for 13 years, like Whitey Bulger was up here. And uh, I never committed a crime with Rico, but they were subpoenaing me to the trial. Now, I'm finishing up my bid. If I went to the trial and pleaded the fifth, I would have got locked up again. And I was again locked up for this kid. And uh, I told him I never committed a crime with him. We, we did want to murder him. I'm not going to lie. You know, oh, no, that's I was not going to clip him. I almost got him a few times. And anyway, besides that, um, they said, well, listen, just sit on the stand. They give us the structure of the mob. You were the boss then. 
Can you do that? I said, yeah, I could do that. And they offered to put me in the winner's protection program. Not because I was afraid, but I was divorced, got divorced in prison. I had nowhere to go and I had no money left. I'm not going to lie. I'll tell you the truth. I'm, you know, I'm not a liar. And I thought it might have been a good opportunity to start my life over. But uh, I went into the program <clears throat> and of course I was homesick. Uh, all I thought about every day, even though I met a beautiful woman down there, got married down there in Tennessee when I got out. Okay, so we got a Boston guy, Italian yeah. Boston guy going to Tennessee. I, yeah, that was something. I, yeah. I would just assume that there's probably not too many uh, Italians in, in, in Tennessee. Well, there is actually. There's an Italian association, but there's not many. But I met a lot of it. I met a lot of Italians down there. You met you maybe met the only five guys, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe one out of a hundred, or maybe even a thousand. I don't know. But I, I, you know, I got some around me. But um, so I started uh, my ministry on the Rollins of Esposito. I had the website. I had the whole thing going. No, no, was that le- was that legit, Bob? Was that Alonzo Esposito? I know that was your witness protection name, but you were you were legitly a pastor and and serving and and loving God. You just had to go under that name because some yeah. people some people will say he was a fraud that when he came out and he was taking people's money as a pastor or something like that. Right? I never made any money being a pastor. Number one. Okay, so you're one of those okay. pastors. That's like my father in law. He, yeah, people think that you become a pastor. No, my father-in-law was a no. working pastor, struggling. Yeah. All his check went to the church. You know, I was always hoping that you know it would be you know there would be money there, there'd be money in the ministry, you know, just to support myself. I sure. wasn't looking to get rich, but that didn't work out. So when I got home, I went to a few different churches, and I had written the book. And the first one I published it under Alonzo Esposito. At that time, I called it the Last Generation. And I gave it to these pastors, and two of them asked me to come and teach in their church. I uh, married my wife, Julie, my second wife, and she lived next door to Bishop Coleman. Bishop Coleman reads the book. He's got a great black church, uh, Faith Keepers Ministry, right outside of Tennessee, uh, right outside of Memphis. And he said, Bobby, I got moved by the book. I want you to come and teach in my church. And I'll tell you, it was filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you, the Spirit used to come upon me when I was in there. It was amazing. What a great man he was. But I was going through other things at the time. And uh, I'm not saying that, you know, the church was black. I'm not saying that they didn't take to me, you know, like they would maybe to a black minister, a pastor. They were very supportive in certain ways. But I just felt that it was time for me to move out of there and move along. And I started a little TV ministry, and I started uh, a radio show down in Tennessee until I left my wife about the divorce. Did your wife know your 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 previous life? I, I ended up telling her, yes. I ended up telling her. Well, how did that go? She wasn't surprised. She wasn't surprised, really. Well, I mean, if you see the way that I look, and especially seven, eight years ago when I got out, and uh, I'm all slicked up, my I, accent. I did see a picture of you. Uh, I, I I Googled your name. I saw both names, and then yeah. I seen you, and you were preaching. But you had a nice, nice suit, especially for, uh, I would say, what, early 2000s? It was all yeah. black. You had the white tie, white handkerchief, yeah. and I go, yeah, this guy's standing out in Tennessee for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was standing out. And, uh 
you know, I started the uh, the shows and doing art down there. And uh, now she knew right away. You know, I'm, I'm, I have OCD. I'm like a perfectionist. And she came in my apartment and it looked like a whole tub went there. It was just too nice and perfect. And I says, nah, there's something wrong with you. She thought first that night she came over. Said, there's something up with this, you know. It was too funny. But, uh, yeah, I ended up telling her. She accepted it. The kids did. She had three children at the time. The problem was, even though I'm a Christian now and I felt it was the right thing to do, I did 14 years in prison. I wasn't ready to come out and get married. You know, that's a long stretch. It's something when you come out and you go back to your wife or your mama. But to meet a new woman, get married, start a family, I, I wasn't ready for it. Right. I mean, that, that was that was way too much change. I mean, prison. Yeah, it was. Uh, taking on a whole nother name. N- now you're, you're, you're a believer. You're, you're trying to serve yeah. God. And then you're in a town that, yeah, you probably don't belong in. Right? <laughs> yeah, it just, just it was, nothing was right about any of it. And uh, she was a great girl, beautiful woman. But I just couldn't, couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't do it, you know. And, I, I, and I, like I said, I just wanted to come home. So... I stood there for all five years, did a year in Florida, and then I came back to Boston in 2018. And I've been home ever since. With no plans of leaving again. Uh, what does that mean for a gangster that, that, that left the life, come back, you know, almost 20 years later? And, I mean, do you, how do you feel? Are you nervous? Are you, are you thinking that, you know, somebody's looking for you? How, how does that work? Well, listen, I came home. I, like I, I told you, I never ratted on anybody. You know, there's no reason. You know, the mob's different now. I just sent a few words out. I don't want no problems with nobody. Leave me alone. I want to do my own thing. Uh, there was a few little things, but minor, you know, and uh, they would attack me more on the computer than anything else. Um, but I don't know. You know, who knows? Maybe I'll run into a guy here and there. But, uh, you know, I have a lot of good friends here. Uh, a lot of people that still cared about me when I came home. Like I said, a lot of, most of the guys out of the life. And uh, I don't think they want to bother with any of us, to be honest with you. I don't think it'd be smart. I, I, I assume you still, you know, still an, an intimidating looking guy in real life. Well, listen, you know, I'm older now. But like I said, I'm not going to let nobody abuse me. I'm not looking to abuse anybody. You know, when I left, I left a million dollars on the street with loan shock money and drug money. I never went after a penny of it. I don't want it. It was blood money. You know, but uh, if you come up against me, then we're going to have a problem. And I I still, to some point, believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because, uh, like I said, again, if Satan knew he could come and slap you in the face every day, he would. He'd send someone to do it. He would. He really would. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So you got to let people know you're not going to accept that. Right. Christian that, or not. I, that's what I think. I think uh I I got into it with a guy online of course and he yeah. and he was saying that he was a Christian, he was tired of Christians um taking a uh uh the 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 scripture, you know, turn the other cheek, you know, that we were we were creating soft, you know, boys, you know, growing up and and men because we're we're using that scripture to that extent. And I said Hey, and man. it's not meant for that. Yeah, and I told him, hey, man, what what, what do you mean? I mean, I w- I've been going to church my whole life, but if somebody wanted to fight me in the neighborhood, my dad would make me go outside and fight this dude. 
Christian or not. You know, so it was. I don't know why they think like uh, all these Christians like you. You can't step to them. I I know plenty of brothers in the church where on the streets there were somebody, and yeah. they they don't go away from that mentality all the way. No. Somebody hits them, there it's on. You know. Well, remember what that scripture meant. Now, this is what we have to talk about. This is why people warp into their favor all these scriptures, and they change the meanings and interpretations. In those days, if a Roman slap you in the face and you hit him back, it's a death penalty. This is why Jesus told him to turn the other cheek. Stay away from the violence. Because it's not going to end up good for them. They can, a Roman soldier could compel you to carry their, whatever they had transporting, no matter who you are, okay, a mile or two miles. Right. He said, just go do it. Right. You know, that's where the, that's is, where the term go the extra mile comes from. Exactly. You, so what happens now, they misinterpret the scripture. They twist the scripture. OK. And they don't know the real meaning of the scripture. Even a lot of these pastors, when they come up with these things, you know, I'm, I'm the last person that believes that when you die, born again, Christian, not, you don't go to heaven, my friend. All Paul's teachings, Christ's teachings. Even from King David teaches us that we sleep. Read the book of Job. I mean, I got all this in my book, you know. Why is there a resurrection if we're all up in heaven? Does that even make sense to you? Well, I, I believe the yeah. body. I, in spirit, the spirit, because when Christ was on the cross, right? He, he All right. He, I, all right. Can I say something? Okay, let me, Here's let me, the problem let me, okay, with let the church. See, let me now, see. I don't mean to interrupt you, Dave. No, no, no. Go you. ahead. Go ahead. Great guy. Here's the problem. That's one scripture, Paul. Okay. Read okay. what Paul teaches you in Corinthians 15. Read what Paul teaches you in Thessalonians. Read what Christ says in John 11. Read what Peter repeats the psalm in Acts. Read all of this and see exactly what it says. Okay? When you go into deep into the scriptures and actually see the teachings of these men, now you know that that's not true. Okay. The heavenly realm was made for the heavenly host, for the angels, for God in his throne room. Heaven wasn't made for men, although there are some that were taken. And I know that, and I believe that. But it's not for all of us. Okay? He didn't create that realm for men. This is man's realm. So where do we go when we die? Well, the Bible tells us that we go to Hades. In the Old Testament, it was shown. In all these teachings, even Paul says uh, about those who sleep. So we sleep in Christ till the resurrection comes. I'm of the belief, the body. So the the spirit goes. The body is a, is a new body. When, when But that's, see, but what y'all believing is what we're taught. That's what they tell us in the churches. That's what the Christians believe, right? Because that's what they were taught. We're always taught a certain way. Even even the Spanish and Italian, they teach the same way. We come from the same church, Paul. Well, they, the, the the Italians and, and and the Mexicans teach the 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 whole uh, Abraham's bosom and and you're the in whole the, thing. Yeah, it's the same. Paul. Yeah, it, it's the same. The thing is, you have to read the scriptures. So I think we'll, we'll I think we'll agree on this. Okay, Con- context. All right, context. Right. Yeah. I, I think people take people take scriptures out of context. They read one they scripture, don't. they don't read 
the 20 scriptures before that scripture, and they don't read the 20 scriptures after that. Thank you. All right, we can agree on that. All right. That's a good sit-down between uh, yeah. two brothers. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Spiritual, <laughs> spiritual sit-down. So, yeah, Bob, that was good. Do yeah. you, do, obviously, somebody must have been praying for you. Oh, yeah. Was, was that your mother? The whole church, my mother's church. Um, they were praying that I would see my evils, and I did one night. And then they were praying for my, you know, spirit, soul, and body. Praise God. And there was a lot of intercessory prayer for me all through prison. And what happened is the spirit came really strong upon me with, with visions, uh, different interpretations. That's how I ended up writing the book and teaching my classes. My book is based upon the Bible with a historical, um, uh, I should say it's written in a historical summary of all the dates and everything that I, you know, from being a creationist, because I'm a devout creationist. Chronological order. All the chronological order, and I believe we're on the 14th day of creation. You know, when um, Adam lost his kingdom on the seventh day to Lucifer, and they all fell, and man started on the eighth day when he was kicked out of the garden. But now we're on the Sabbath again. What was Jesus really supposed to do when he came here? He was supposed to redeem the Sabbath day. And he will when he comes back. So the 14th day is actually the seventh day of the week, which is the Sabbath. See, I got this all on my book and all on my thesis. This guy's getting the theologian locked up for 14 years is coming out right now, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And uh, that's what my book's based upon. So we go from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelations. Okay. I break down the book of Revelations. Right. Right, I'm I'm in I'm in Revelations right now. Greg Laurie has a great book right now, and uh, about the promises in Revelation. So we're reading. I'm reading through that with that book. So uh, I love to read, man. I'm gonna have to check out your book. Yeah, that'd be nice if you do. Now you gotta remember, it's a summary of my classes. That that course usually took twenty to twenty four weeks. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it sounds like it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does because I just have to stop breaking it down. You know. Hey, Bobby, let me ask you this, man. Um, the toll that the mob life took on you, man, what, yeah. what, what was that like? And, and I ask you this because um, for the young guy out there, maybe he's not, maybe he wants to be in the mob. Maybe he wants to be in, in the gang life and, and think that. But what, what is, we only see the highlights on, on the movies, right? These guys live, you know, lavish lifestyle. They, they, it's always the, the good stuff. But what, what is some of the bad things and, and that you, in the, in the mob life can encounter. Well, listen, when your boss tells you someone has to be whacked, or you have to make a decision to whack somebody and either go yourself or send somebody, that's pretty heavy, Bo. You know, we play God out there. We don't realize that. Um, when someone tells you you have to hurt a friend, or maybe even a family member, you know, I didn't realize the weight that I was carrying on my shoulders. I'm going to tell you a story. Remember I told you that I smiled when they picked me up and I had a nice house cut into a hill and I had a lot of steps coming down from the front door and I'm going down the steps and I get out to the street to get in the car and I felt something break off my shoulders like a yoke. A million pounds came off my shoulders. Well, that's when I started smiling. That's what I was smiling over. I actually felt a physical oak 
Yeah, yolk. I'm sorry. Did I say oak? You said oak. But it's not a good thigh. I got it. Hey, maybe maybe, yolk. maybe the yolk's made out of oak. You never yeah. know. <laughs> a physical yolk break off of me. A million pounds came. I was like, what happened here? Yeah. I felt peaceful. We don't understand everyday life, the burdens that we carry. And we only make it worse on ourselves. Being in La Cosa Nostra was, was terrible. You know, there's good things of the life and there's bad things of the life. When you start getting deeper and deeper into the mob, you start seeing Satan's pit more and more. You're down in that merry clay and you just go down and down and down and it's hotter and hotter to get out. You know, and I'll tell you something. The day I got arrested, I knew I was in God's hands because all that broke away from me. All the responsibilities, worrying about the guys every month, worrying about myself, worrying about getting pinched, worrying about the money, worry who's going to pay me, who has to get whacked, who wants to kill me. It was all gone. And that split second, boom, it was done. Yeah. I mean, I went into jail. I had another fight. Don't get me wrong. Now you're fighting the government. But that's a little different. Right. Right. I, I could see that. Uh, that that'd be a good scene in a movie right there. They make a movie about your life and you, you're getting arrested and just that's and it ends on you smiling. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it just is. It, it's it takes its toe. I mean, I, I would assume that you're just constantly watching your back. Just constantly. Yeah. There's always something that you got to worry about. You know, I didn't come up easy. I came up in a wall. You know, I know how hectic it was in South Cali and down that end with the gangs and everything, and you got to be careful all the time. You know, but uh, there's one thing about gangbang, and there's another thing that hits on your life, you know. And uh, every day, it was a concern. Never left my house without a gun. Always ready to defend myself, you know. And that's how I had to live. And I just didn't worry about myself. I worried about my crew. I worried about everything. But you don't, like I said, you don't realize the burden. You just don't realize it. So God takes it and breaks you off your shoulders. Right. And that whole weight of the world just comes off you. It's amazing. It's amazing. Where's where's Bobby Luisi at now? Bobby Luisi now got his TV YouTube show, the Bobby Luisi show. He lives a normal life. Uh, we're getting ready to open another car lot up, used car lot. Uh, we're probably going to start that next week. And that's it. I'm just trying to be an average Joe civilian and just go on with my life. Do you miss the life? Absolutely. I miss the glamour and the fame of the life, not the other part of it. Right. I mean, but the treachery and everything else that was involved in it. But I do miss the glamour of the life. The notoriety. The notoriety. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. Wow. Hey, Bobby, I appreciate you coming on, man. Man, I, this was a great show, but I love you. I'll tell you, brother. <laughs> no, this was good. Thank this you, was man. Good. I appreciate it. We, we do one last thing on the Street Gospel Podcast, and yeah. it's, it's, it's what we call the Furious Five. And we ask you five furious questions, and uh, we have you answer it. So I, I, I wrote a few down here. And uh, so we got, of course, we got to, you know, got to play a little music here. So if question number one on the Street Gospel Furious Five, if I came to Boston and you had some time to spare 
and you said, Dave, let's get lunch. Where are you taking me? I'm taking you right in the north end to Lacanti's restaurant. And what are we yeah, ordering? Great Italian lunch. Me, I'm probably going to have a frutto di mare. Oh, uh, nice. Uh, over linguine. Nice thick red sauce. I, I'm just going to say, if, if that ever happens, I'm just going to go and say, Bobby, order for me. You tell oh, yeah, me. Definitely. definitely. That'd be a good one. Question yep. number two. Yep. Your favorite Bible character. My favorite? Yeah. Believe it or not, it's Jonah. Jonah. Yep. Why Jonah? Well, you know, there's always new prophecies in the Bible. And it's just amazing how he was raised. And it just shows the resurrection there. Right. You know, what he went through, how he tried to run from God and didn't make it. Yeah. No matter what, God was sending him on that mission. Even to spit him out of a fish that he created. Yep. He had to go. He had to do it. You know what? I got a good uh, a good analogy for that. You can go ahead and use this one, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But with Jonah, we, all, we, we, we argue, was it a fish? Or was it a whale? And, and and God tells us it was rebellion. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're, yeah. we're, we're focused on the stupidest stuff, right? Jonah. Yeah. Was it a fish? Yeah. Was it, it was a whale, bro. No, it was a fish. No, man. It was rebellion. That's it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It was probably the great Lathai. Yo, I can't even say the word. I'm so tired. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, Bobby. Let's get to uh, question number four. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You got something? No, no, no. Let's okay. do it. All right. Question number four. Is there a hobby that the Capo Bobby Luisi has that nobody knows about and you keep under wraps? Absolutely not. Nothing. Right now, today, today my hobby is I do all the editing and everything for my show. Nice. nice. The research and everything. That That's my hobby is the show. I, I was looking for, like, I was hoping, like, yeah, I, I, knit, I don't I, make bolts. I, I, I knit I scarves knit on the weekend. <laughs> I don't crochet. No, that's, that's not for me, buddy. All right. All right, last one, Bobby. Number okay. five. If you can go back and change one decision in your life, what would it be? To keep being a carpenter. Yeah. Yeah. That would have made me the man that I am today. But if I had a choice... I say to keep being a carpenter. Yeah. And, and we know who the greatest carpenter was, right? Jesus. Man. Maybe he gave me that skill when I was younger. Right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Praise God. Hey, Bobby, appreciate you coming on, man. I had a great time with you. Is there anything you want to you wanna shout out or promote? No, listen, I, I you know, I have to show the Bobby Luisi show on YouTube. Uh, we're always on Wednesday Night Live. We have a lot of fun on that show. Uh, Wednesday nights, 8 o'clock Eastern time We're on every Wednesday Plus I do a few different shows um, I have a few different I, I have probably 112 shows up there So nice. anybody wants to come, subscribe um, Also like my book God's Plan Revealed Is up on Amazon uh, I, I, I'm not going to say it's a good read But it's a good study book um, Pretty much that's about it right now That's what's going on Alright Hey you Thank you for coming out, Bobby. And everybody out there, I want to thank you for listening to the Street Gospel Podcast. This was a great episode with Bobby Luisi, man. Made guy. Our first made guy, I mean, on the show. I mean, it's it's uh, it's pretty special. I think you have a great story, Bobby. Uh, thank you. I think uh, 
hey man, somebody should make this story into a movie or something, man. It'd be great. Well, that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> All right, Bobby. I'll see you, man. Thanks for your time. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you.